internal surveillance system of the Labour Party was conspiring to lose the election. We underestimated those functions of the establishment. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Joining us today, we're super t- excited to have Loki. Welcome to the EI podcast. Thank you for having me. It's really special uh, to be here, Electronic Intifada, since the heyday of pro-Palestinian expression on the internet 10 years ago. Um, Electronic Intifada has been a real bastion and has been uh, an important site for so many of us in understanding what is happening and long may Electronic Intifada continue. Thank you. Um, and Loki is one of the most important rappers in Britain today. He's had massive success as a hip hop MC. He could have gone mainstream and accepted a deal with a major record label, but instead he's chosen to stay independent, giving him the freedom to talk about whatever he wants in his lyrics. Um, and he's renowned for his unmatched lyricism as much as for his politics. His first fire in the booth from 2010 uh, has more than 6 million YouTube views. Loki has always used his music to support the things that he believes in, not least the cause of Palestinian liberation. His most famous tracks include Long Live Palestine, Ahmed Terrorist, and Obama Nation. We've been trying to get you on the podcast for ages and finally the stars aligned um, and you're here. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for the very kind introduction as well. Yeah, well, we meant we meant all of it, you know. So um, thank you, we've been, you know, you were very generous with your introduction to us and uh, we've been fans of yours for a long time as well. So, yeah, the feeling is mutual. Um, let's you. start off with a topical question um, on the issue of um, the kind of, there's, there's really what's happening in, in academia in this country. Um, and what's happening is essentially the smear campaign that's really, it's really a continuation of the smear campaign that was happening in politics has moved over to academia and has moved over to um, trying to get David Miller fired. So um, as you know, our most of our viewers will know, um, David Miller is a researcher at Bristol University, he's a pr- professor of sociology um and he uh he, he you know he's published research and reports on lobbies and on pr and uh, th- things like that and one of the lobbies that he's researched is the israel lobby and they are now trying to get him fired essentially so uh what's your take on what's happening at the university of bristol at the moment well as you uh correctly put it it's an extension of what happened in the political sphere during the 
glitch in the matrix, which was the Jeremy Corbyn leadership of the Labour Party. Obviously, Corbyn being conspired against by, on one side, the British establishment and on the other side, foreign actors, was not the aberration of history. You saw Harold Wilson being um, plotted against by the intelligence services also previously. So the parameters of political choice in the country are extremely narrow, extremely narrow. And we see that with the Keir Starmer um, and, his, uh, and his clear support also for Israel. You know, th where we're talking about something with the academic side of things is we're seeing the pressure to accept the IHRA um, definition of anti-Semitism, but especially with somebody like David, and I would you know really like to state my absolute solidarity with him. He has um, a legacy of so much brilliant and important work, which I think far more people in British society need to be aware of and acquainted with because it could teach them so much about the way power functions. Um, and, and one of the things, sorry, you're, you're still muted. David Miller's research, more people need to know about it, essentially. Absolutely, more people need to know about it. And, you know, Electronic Intifada has done a stellar job of um, supporting David, as few others have done. But I think there's one aspect of what he said that he hasn't been adequately defended on unfortunately. And that is the involvement of pro-Zionist organizations and actors with the Islamophobia industry. Now, if you were to ask people in this country who the main proponents within the last decade or so of Islamophobia have been, they would certainly say Tommy Robinson and Katie Hopkins. If you were to say that Tommy Rod Robinson's Free Tommy campaign was funded by Middle East Forum. You know, this is uh, also functions as a think tank and was quoted 13 times by Anders Brevik in his uh, manifesto. Um, Middle East Forum, the director of it, is a gentleman by the name of Greg Roman. He was an employee of the Israeli Ministry of Defense and of the Israeli Foreign Ministry. Uh, Lucy Brown, a former employee of Tommy Robinson, said that he was receiving £10,000 per month from Robert Shillman as part of his Shillman Fellowship at the David Horowitz Freedom Centre. Well, who is Robert Shillman? He was on the board of directors for the Friends of the IDF. The Shillman Foundation also funds the Friends of the IDF, the Christians United for Israel, the Jewish National Fund and the Zionist Organisation of America. Robert Shillman is identified as, um, through his foundation, funding um, organizations involved in the building of Israeli settlements. We know that Tommy Robinson also went to the West Bank and the Jordan Heights and posed on the back of an IDF tank. He later publicly stated that he would fight for Israel in a war. This was an aspect of the Tommy Robinson uh, phenomenon that wasn't adequately dealt with by mainstream media in any way, shape or form. He was backed materially by people that see themselves as Zionists and actively support Zionist colonization 
and ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian. Katie Hopkins, you know, let's not forget that she took a trip to the uh, David Horowitz Freedom Center in 2017 and said, we must arm ourselves. She also worked for Rebel Media, which is funded by the Middle East Forum and uh, Robert Shillman, and advocated for the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. On a personal note, uh, in, in regards to uh, Katie Hopkins, there's a 2014 interview with her in The Guardian in which she states that after leaving college, she signed a 35-year contract with British military intelligence. She trained at Sandhurst and claims that the only reason that she isn't today in the British Army is because she has epilepsy. But it's actually far wider than Katie Hopkins and Tommy Robinson. They are not aberrations, as uh, has been uh, delved into by um, uh, Sarah Marusek in her chapter in David's book with Tom Mills and others, uh, What is Islamophobia? You find that 75% of the organizations that fund the Global Islamophobia Network, we're talking about think tanks like the Henry Jackson Society, we're talking about the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, we are talking about memory even is identified as part of the Global Islamophobia Network. So 75% of the organizations that fund them also fund the building of Israeli settlements, which are illegal according to UN Resolution 2334. Sheldon Adelson, of course, you know, was famous for his support for Israeli uh, colonization, giving over $83 million over a four-year period and $25 million to Ariel University on um, occupied territory in the West Bank. You know, he funded Birthright Israel. He funded Christians United for Israel, the JNF, and the Zionist organizations, Organization of America. But he also funded memory. He also funded Foundation for Defense of Democracies and CAMRA, well-known Zionist organizations. These are all organizations spread. linked directly to the state of Israel. So, like, uh, for uh, for example, the um, Foundation for Defense of Democracies um, is known to, uh, 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 you know, be linked to the Ministry of Strategic Affairs and to coordinate its activities to Israel's Ministry of Strategic Affairs, the anti-BDS ministry, you know, as re was revealed in the Al Jazeera film. I, I think I think this is uh, uh, a really good point that you're making, that these uh, Islamophobic uh, forces, these anti-Muslim agitators, right-wing, uh, I would argue fascist agitators like uh, Tommy Robinson and um, Katie Hopkins, um, you know, they do get these this kind of material support from... Uh, pro-Israel organizations, Zionist organizations, and organizations that are explicitly directly linked to the state of Israel or sort of quasi-states or bodies at least. I think it, I think it's a really important uh, point that you're making, and it is a large part of the reason why David Miller has been uh, targeted in this way. Yeah, exactly, and I think that unfortunately it's been a real you can't call it a blind spot because it's not by accident. But when the Robert Shillman funding of Tommy Robinson came out, he was dealt with as just a neocon. 
you know, and, and I had to go on the uh, Friends of the IDF website and look at uh, their archives to find that he was their board of, on the board of directors previously. So this relationship was never really seriously problematized um, in a meaningful way. You know, there's others like Paul E. Singer Foundation, also funders of Friends of, I of the IDF, the Israel Independence Fund, and simultaneously funding Birthright Israel, but also the NGO Monitor uh, in Jerusalem and Memory too. And an interesting by the by about Paul Singer, Paul E. Singer, is that not only being the second largest uh, donor to the Republicans, he is also the, the boss of Elliott Management, which is an organization that is the largest shareholder in Arconic, the uh, construction company that made the cladding on Grenfell. You know, mm. Paul E. Singer, um, through Elliott Management, is also a major donor to the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson. Now, an interesting crossover is that Arconic, not only making killer cladding that killed people um, in uh, Latimer Road, he, the Arconic also got the contract for the F-35 to build it with Lockheed Martin and, um, and BAE Systems. And we know how important the threat of the F-35 has been in terms of, uh, you know, Netanyahu giving a speech in front of it, threatening Iran. You know, the, it's, it's quite horrific when you see the true picture of how power is able to reproduce itself and how interests overlap and uh, cross over. But just that point on the David Miller is that I think that that link between um, the building of Israeli settlements in the West Bank, illegal settlements, and the Islamophobia industry, unfortunately, that point has not been made um, firmly and assertively enough. And another facet of um, you know the kind of the the breadth of work that the Israel lobby and Islamophobia industries um, are are involved in is also censorship and working with private companies like uh, you know YouTube and Facebook, uh, Zoom, to crack down on um, freedom of speech to. Uh, really, and and uh, you know, just you know, specifically targeting um, speech about Palestine and Palestinian liberation. Um, we've reported a lot on the Silicon Valley monopolies um, and and their increasing cracking down on on freedom of speech, especially you know on on Palestine. How how have you seen this affect your work um, on Spotify and YouTube, for example? Um, you know, wh how 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 do you see the the certain you know that this um, this current um, you know manipulation of algorithms and um, you know and censorship kind of affecting your work. Well, I mean, the f mainly it's a Facebook question for me. I think the YouTube side of things is harder to pin down, but there are some signs in that regard. In terms of Facebook, obviously, we know that the, the cyber unit in the Israeli army as of 2015 has uh, worked heavily on um, getting accounts deleted, um, getting posts deleted. You know, Unit 8200 has, you know, been looking at 
people's posts and, and working out how they're, they're sort of algorithmatizing how likely they would be to become collaborators. Um, you know, we've seen Facebook uh, generally acquiescent to those uh, requests that come to them uh, from the Israeli state. But in terms of uh, me personally, I think a period of time where perhaps we were not vigilant enough was the fake news push that we saw. Now, rather than the, and, and we often see this, uh, problems are either presented or in some cases manufactured, but then the answer to that problem which is offered always, always taps right but smashes left. Yeah. And, and what you saw was the push of an idea that Facebook in 2016 somehow had an anti-conservative bias. Well, how was that dealt with uh, towards the uh, end of the first year of Trump's time in office? There were um, major decisions being made within Facebook about trusted sources. Now, if you were ostensibly, if you were seen to be too clearly partisan, then you would suffer because you would not be seen as a neutral or objective form of news. Mm -hmm. Now, Mother Jones had an investigation whereby they found that internally um, a site like the Daily Wire um, hosting Ben Shapiro was actually benefiting from uh, Facebook's new understanding of um, trustworthy um, sources, but um, uh, a site like Mother Jones was suffering and they put it clearly at the door of Facebook's Washington office, um, Vice President of Global Public Policy, Joel Kaplan. Um, supposedly he had set about to uh, make sure that the algorithm would favor more conservative sources of news, whether that be Fox News or Ben Shapiro or um, The Daily Caller, who uh, in 2018, he tried to bring in as one of Facebook's uh, fact-checking partners. So what Mother Jones reported was they saw um, a loss of around $600,000 uh, because of that in the first six months after the change um, in 2016, 2017, they saw a 37% drop in uh, engagement on their page. However, if you were to look at Tom Tommy Robinson, at uh, the Daily Wire, at the Daily Caller, at Breitbart, at Fox News during that period, they were continuing to um, come on in leaps and strides. In my case, I can say this. My Facebook page, despite regularly being posted upon, since 2016 has not grown. So in 2016, it had 150,000 followers on it. In 2021, my Facebook page has 150,000 followers on it. Now, in that period of time, there's been 
releases that have gone out through the page that have got a million views, videos that have got a million views. There's been YouTube videos that have got a million views. There's been interview with Noam Chomsky. There's been an interview with Ilhan Omar. There's been many different things that could have attracted traffic. And just to bear in mind that my Facebook page between the year of 2009, okay, to 2011 went from zero to 180,000. When I reactivated it in 2016, inexplicably, it was just 150,000. And as I say, in a period of five years, that number has not moved. In terms of the YouTube thing, it's still in the same name of um, emphasizing trustworthy uh, news sources, but also there's the added element of YouTube as of uh, the appointment of a new head of music there in 2017, who I, I don't really want to get into who he is, but he is also pro-Israeli um, and has written articles to that effect and is Israeli. Um, he, he said clearly before I came to YouTube, Google were treating record labels as their enemies. When I came in, I made it clear to YouTube that we needed to treat these major labels. And he incidentally had just come from working for record labels his entire career. Um, we had to treat them as clients. And so what you then see is a more, uh, a, a relationship of mutual interest between record labels. And don't forget that YouTube deleted Two million, two two billion fake views um, belonging to Universal Records in um, in uh, in 2012. So by the time this new head of music came in, you know, and to be honest with you, I don't mind saying it. The CEO of uh, of Universal, Lucy and Grange, donates to the Friends of the Israel Defense Forces. Yeah. So, you know. We're in a bit of a bind here, people. If we're, yeah. But if you want to take it back further regarding the internet, you know, Yasha Levine in his book Surveillance Valley, his assertion and conviction is that the internet, when it was originally built as the ARPANET following US um, humiliating um, defeat and delicious defeat in Vietnam, um, they designed the internet, the ARPANET, in order to deal with future counterinsurgencies yeah. and to deal with domestic um, subversives. Um, in fact, you found at the universities where the internet was being developed, the ARPANET as it was called at that time, you saw occupations and protests against it because people were saying it would be hugely detrimental to people's rights. And so now what we're really in is a sort of battle for digital self-determination. Yeah. Our information is being used for so many things um, and so many experiments, hundreds and hundreds of experiments. You know, 5,000 character points about you. If, if I was to ask you, Asa, to give me 5,000 sentences that start with I am, you probably couldn't do it unless you're a narcissist, <laughs> which I don't think you are, right? Now... The, the thing is, is that this, this is the function of these contraptions to build up those 5,000 data points. Now, those 
points of character are being purchased hundreds, if not thousands of times a day in deals that we have absolutely no rights mm. to, that we don't know who it's being sold to, and we don't know what it's being used for. And that's the real thing that's happening with our information today due to the internet. Now, when you've got governments like the British or US or Israeli governments, or most governments in general, what do you think they're really going to use that information for? What's happening with that information? Who's regulating? Exactly. Them? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, we are the product, right? Yeah. Precisely. As, as users Precisely. of this of this stuff. And I think uh, battle for digital self-determination is a really uh, good way to put it. Um, so let, let's talk about the uh, record industry a little bit. Um, so recently you had uh, Daily Duppy, congratulations, uh, and you got half a million <laughs> views. Um, uh, perhaps... Explain what that is to our non-youth. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. You, you, you'll explain it better. <laughs> no, well, um, Daily Duppy historically was just a person rapping to a camera on what used to be called Grand Daily, but then was renamed GRM Daily. Um, but then it has become a very slick um, sort of program, you could say, on their YouTube yeah. channel where they animate the uh, lyrics to whatever the person They add there. visual effects to oh, your cool. rap. They add visual. And, and you know something, actually, on that topic that we just said? Now, people may not know this. Well, you may know this as, as, as people involved with a YouTube channel. But, you know, you can pay YouTube to algorithmically favor your song. Okay? So it can put it as a suggested song after the next song. It can put it as a video before the other video. We tried with the Daily Duppy, right, to turn it into an advert. Do you know what YouTube said? Thanks, but no thanks. It said thanks, but no thanks because it contains shocking content. Shocking content. Shocking content. Well, that's bizarre. I mean, I've watched that a few times now. Um, you don't use, I mean, you never really use any curse words in your, you know, in yeah, your what, music. What was, um, what was what, their uh, definition I, of shocking? Yeah, they, they didn't elaborate, but I think it's, it's probably linked to the Boris Johnson, the clip of a brain coming out of Boris Johnson's head, maybe. If I said, I said, if you think you've got more in common with Boris, you're out your brain. About their pain, better yet learn to pronounce their names Think you got more in common with Boris, shut out your brain It's a dead cert, before they get better, things will get worse What can Boris say to the family of a dead And so then the animation lifted the brain out of Boris Johnson's head You know, as much as we'd like to do that in real life It was not, it was not really happening Wow, that's interesting, so there we go That's a, that's a perfect illustration of what you were talking about wow. yeah. But in the, in the comments uh, on that video uh, Which I was reading for the research It was it's a lot, a lot of fun to uh, watch your videos <laughs> for reasons. Wow, um, wow. Yeah, uh, there was a comment by uh, Elijah Koshi, the the chicken connoisseur, who's he. I mean, yeah, as <laughs> our viewers may not know, yeah, he 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 went viral for doing reviews of um, chicken fried chicken shops in London. Yeah, uh, great funny videos. But it turns out he's also a hip hop fan, and he, he comments on a lot of these videos, and he said um of you that the commercial world is actively trying to rub him out so there's a and there was a lot of your fans in the comments saying that the music list industry has blacklisted you so like what's what's the truth in that 
Well, I mean, if we want to trace to really where it where it comes from, I would say when during Operation Castled, when the BBC refused to air the DEC appeal, I was quite harsh on uh, Mark Thompson, who was the Director General of the BBC. Fundraising appeal for the it, God, like an a, totally apolitical fundraising appeal for uh, you know yeah. to, for relief in the Gaza Strip. Mm -hmm. yeah and and so i i was quite clear about that when uh mike righteous then did a fire in the booth and he said i can say free palestine and ironically he said i can say and they 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 you know i mean it's actually not a laughing matter but they censored the word free palestine so obviously that set me on a collision course really with the bbc um, and, you know, things had been fine before that, generally, before the Operation Castled stuff. Um, but then, then there was a point when I was invited on Tim Westwood's radio show. And because he had gone to Camp Bastion with BBC One Extra and broadcast his show from there, um, you know, it's just crude, vulgar war propaganda crap really from you know yeah so tim westwood was a major hip-hop a person DJ, a person right? a person yeah well i mean in my mind his his contribution to the culture has just been vulgar and crude there hasn't been much of of real use to what he's done mm -hmm. um aside from identity and the other things that some, some would sort of point to. But when he's going to Afghanistan and doing his show on a British military base, he is, there's no two ways about it. The British military has been hemorrhaging soldiers. They've lost 15,000 soldiers the last few years um, in a row. One in 10 of their soldiers are foreign nationals. They're panicking. And so they send... Westwood to this base to basically do a week of shows from um, from Afghanistan, from occupied Afghanistan, encouraging black and brown youth to join the British army, essentially. Now, when Jodie McIntyre, who you may remember, wrote an article yeah. uh, condemning Westwood for this, Westwood then came out with a statement saying there's a distinction between uh, the soldiers and the people who sent them. I went there to support the soldiers. And so... When he asked me on the show, I did a bit of homework and I found out, the, you know, the BBC are clearly saying the MOD um, cooperated with us really well on this. And I said, well, the MOD are exactly who send these soldiers. So what are you talking about, mm. Tim? But aside from that, prior to this situation with the Afghanistan stuff, they'd asked me to go on Westwood's show in 2011. Now, I'd been excited to go on. I hadn't even noticed what the date was. Um, Next thing I know, the fixer calls me and says, oh, no, 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 we, we, we just have to cancel it. Like, you, there's just not enough time for you. Really sorry, really sorry. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, interesting, interesting. I later hear from an employee at One Extra that the reason they did that is because it was September 11th and they were concerned that I was going to say something dodgy on live air on Westwood's show. Now, don't forget Westwood, right, in 2010, live on air, called Akala a communist. Did he? Bloody hell, I didn't yeah. know that. 
<laughs> so there's actually an ideological slant to what Tim Westwood does. Mm. Whether, whether that's just something absorbed from the wider society or there's something more sinister to it, you really can't rule out anything, especially when you're dealing with an organization like the BBC. And Tom Mills has a great book about uh, the BBC's history. Let's not forget that Alistair Milne um, was basically cooed out of the director general role at the BBC um, in the Thatcher era. So it's, it's, you know, it's always been a tricky organization to deal with. Yeah, they've, they, then, they have this long history of really blacklisting artists and uh, really having, uh, you know, these these kind of banned lists of songs that aren't allowed on at, like, quote-unquote sensitive times. Exactly. I mean, the MI5 also used to vet their employees. Yeah. And people were vetted for things as simple as having a family member who was a member of the SWP. Yeah. So how is that? So all these these kind of problems with the... Uh, the BBC. So you think it started with the BBC. So how is, but how is that? Like, ha, has it? Is that true though? That like that you've been sort of actively blacklisted by the record industry in general, or is this more sort of the fans, what they the way they're thinking of it? Well, I mean, Carla put it this way: you would not have another person with what would be considered benign subject matter. Um, selling the amount of tickets and the amount of albums that both me and him have sold and not being signed to labels. It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense. So clearly there's an ideological aspect to what is happening. And there just comes a time where you just have to accept it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I've lost already lost count of the number of books that you've cited. So, um, <laughs> well, you took a break from hip hop in mm. starting in 2011. Is that right? 2012. 2012 to focus on your yeah. academic work and your activism. Um, and you came, I mean, you never totally went away. You came back from time no. to time. Uh, but you came back fully in 2019, only a couple of years ago with the return of Loki. But, but really 2016. Okay. Really, 2016. It was it was to deal with algorithmic disadvantaging. We we kind of repackaged the return in 2019 because it was the first album release, basically. So so yeah. So, you're, so really, 2016. Your first album was the first. The first album were uh, came. You came back with uh, soundtrack yeah. to the struggle part two, right? Yeah. Yes. In 2019, and uh, and the return of Loki. Another video with yeah. loads of so many views. Um, I, I forget how many, but millions, right? I think it's one point six okay. million. Yeah. Um, but you now, um, you now have your masters almost. Yep. No, I have it. I have you it. have your masters. Um, yeah. So, what were you doing in those years? And can you tell us more about your masters? So I got a qualification as an English teacher. I got a qualification as a personal trainer. Um, I worked with an organization called London to Calais, whereby we would organize um, convoys of people from London, uh, mainly SOAS University, translators of many different languages to go to Calais and work with lawyers that were there from uh, the Islington Law Centre, from Bat Murphy and others that were working pro bono to try and bring 
uh, particularly miners, but people that were in the camp um, over here um, on the Dubs Amendment EU law, which at that time said that you had to reunite people with first degree relatives and that they could claim for asylum in a different EU country than the one they are in. And so um, worked on quite a few cases and uh, as a translator, um, which is good, you know, um, in terms of progress. But um, th translator that it, it but, from um, Arabic, right? What that oh, what that meant was uh, was I was connecting with kind of like minded people in that way. And it was it was good. But what I realized during that period was I was also getting my master's was um, I would just be way more useful. You know, I had built this platform and I had this voice, but yet I wasn't using it. And, and it sort of, I know to others, it would seem so straightforward. You know, you have a responsibility now, but it really struck me. And I thought even with the stuff that we're doing here and how useful we feel it is on a, on a, one-to-one -one interpersonal level it's just a drop in the ocean of what can be done if you really embrace that voice that is there and so then that kind of pushed me to to get back into stuff in 2016 and also the industry had changed in 2016 you know mm. it had changed a lot so tell, how did that oh go ahead tell us tell us a little bit about your masters i i mean uh, i think i could say i've read a read some of it Okay, um, when you say a little bit, I could go on for quite a long time. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so give I'm us the uh, executive the summary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, there's a few things that I think would be relevant uh, to this podcast. So do feel free to chop it up um, as much as you want to use or not use. But I am going to try and go into some of it just because I think some of it is quite, is quite, you know, it blew my mind at the time. And unfortunately... In British society, except for on electronic intifada or with other um, fellow comrades that are uh, moved to righteous indignation by these things, there's very few places that you can even discuss most of the stuff that I studied during the Masters. So I looked at the way in which Israel uses the telecommunication system for several different forms of violence against the Palestinian. I also looked at um, quite in depth at the uh, war tourism or the colonialism tourism organizations that Israel has, um, whether it is the 7,000 lone soldiers that are in the Israeli army who are not Israeli citizens who serve for 14 to 18 months. Um, as we just saw uh, recently, with the killing of Ata'Allah Rayyan by, um, uh, I think her name, what was her name? Uh, Le Leanne, I forget the name of the British citizen who, who recently killed 17-year-old Palestinian boy in the West Bank. I looked at some of the organizations, uh, mainly in occupied Palestine, that work on that simulatory and participatory uh, war tourism. In terms of the phone, you know, what I found is that obviously traditional weapons are immediately um, discernible to the eye, whereas the phone uh, enables and facilitates violence in a very invisible 
way. And it kind of is in line with the way that Moshe Dayan uh, envisioned, uh, you know, one of the children of Ord Wengate, Moshe Dayan, envisioned an inconspicuous military presence after 1967 as a sort of invisible administration. And what you found is that really um, the, the landlines that were available to Palestinians prior to the Oslo era was only used by about 2% of the Palestinian population. So Oslo opened up this massive new space where Israel um, recognized the rights of the Palestinians to operate a separate and independent communication uh, system. However, it was qualified with a caveat that said the equipment will be used only when the independent Palestinian network is operational. So as you see throughout these, uh, these, these, these periods, there's this sort of creative ambiguity that allowed for the development of a telecommunication system which is perpetually, perpetually dependent on permission granted by the Israeli Ministry of Communication. And paradoxically, this promise of telecommunication sovereignty for Palestinians that was contained in Oslo II paved the way for the occupation to simultaneously increase its reach and invisibility through the establishment of a telecommunications network, which is Palestinian in name only. So the four kinds of violence that I found um, the phone enabled were architectural, firstly, um, infrastructural, secondly, which includes economic violence, and um, cultural and state violence um, also. Obviously, the architectural form of violence, there is, you know, the famous case of the settlers that couldn't communicate with the Israeli army. So they um, uh, informed the Israeli government that it was a security issue. So they needed to be able to contact the Israeli army all the time. So what Israel did with Orange was they built a, um, an antenna, um, which around the antenna then developed an Israeli settlement. Um, so what we see is we see that this, this need for telecommunications for settlers then leads to further settlement. So it's that way in which the phone is a sort of vehicle for that, um, that architectural uh, violence. Obviously, we know that uh, the situation being as it is in, uh, in Area C, you know, being 60% of the West Bank, but the uh, Palestinians cannot build in it. So what it means is that um, most Palestinian companies are reliant on Israeli infrastructure that's set up in Area C. So it incurs all types of charges, um, you know, and it was estimated that if um, the Palestinian telecommunications company companies wanted to offer high levels of reception to their users in Area C, they'd have to build 330 antenna towers there. And obviously that is something that Israel will uh, never allow them to do. In the infrastructural side of things, um, you see that uh, the companies, uh, the Palestinian companies, are obligated to apply to the Israeli Ministry of Telecommunications in order to import equipment. 
But uh, since 2007, all equipment um, that is uh, for which permission is granted must fulfill a dual use function, meaning not only civil, but military. And so what it means is that all telecommunications equipment, uh, the IDF have to have uh, access and full use of it. Um, so what it means is that while the IDF and Motorola Israel were able to launch an encryption uh, um, project called Mountain Rose, which meant that the IDF had uh, bespoke um, encryption for them, meaning that their calls could not be listened to by any resistance organizations. You have simultaneously the Palestinian telecommunication could never be encrypted and was always visible to the IDF. But IDF communication could never be um, visible or audible, shall we say, to uh, Palestinians. Obviously, you have the captive market side of it, whereby the population in the West Bank, you know, in international law, Israel is prohibited from uh, deriving e economic benefit from the occupation. But we know that it's many different sectors and the telecommunications is just one of them where Israel does extract profit uh, from Palestinians. Uh, the way they do this, there's, there's several ways. There's uh, three ways, in fact. So all calls made in the West Bank and Gaza through Palestinian companies have to be routed through Israel. So connection and termination charges on every call are paid by Palestinian companies to Israeli companies. Uh, secondly, when a phone administered by a Palestinian company makes a call to a phone from an Israeli company, the Palestinian company incurs a surcharge uh, for that call. And thirdly, due to the restrictions that were mentioned before um, for building in uh, Area C, Palestinian operators are reliant on signals which are provided by Israeli uh, companies. Also, you have the issue of Israeli phone companies which operate in uh, the settlements, Partner, Pelephone, Golan Telecom, Hot Mobile and Cellcom. These companies actively target the Palestinian market outside of the settlements. And so there are estimates that between 20 to 40 percent of the Palestinian population use uh, these uh, these um, telecommunication companies for their um, for their stuff, you know, and even the World Bank estimated that if the Palestinian um, Palestinians were allowed to build that uh, telecommunications infrastructure in Area C, it would add at least forty eight million to the Palestinian economy, um, and it's uh, also been estimated that they lose about sixty million dollars annually from the Palestinian economy. Um, because of the way that the Israeli companies treat it as a cost-free zone. So it's sort of pay, the, there's no paying tax to the Palestinian Authority, but Israel make the, the Israeli companies make all of this money out of uh, the, uh, the Palestinian um, customers. You know, I mean, we could go on. Uh, there's much on uh, Electronic Intifada about Unit um, 8200. It was a great source, actually, for my, uh, my, uh, my dissertation. But, uh, yeah, I mean, also in the Masters, I did get to look at this issue of the simulatory and, and participatory war tourism. And it's, it's particularly ugly if you look closely at it. You know, you've got these, uh, these um, military bases in settlements 
Is this uh, things it, like the uh, Shirat Hadid's ultimate mission to Israel or whatever it's called? I, I haven't actually gone into them. I, I didn't come across them. But there's, uh, in terms of the simulatory side of it, it's uh, organizations like Caliber 3, who are probably the biggest one, that tens of thousands of tourists pass through them uh, every year. And, and what like you, you get see... to hold a real M16 and shoot at a paper target sort of thing, like a real Israeli soldier, that kind well, of stuff? Well, well, not quite M16s, but they are given some pretty serious artillery and, and they target sort of live ammunition at um, cutouts right. of elderly Palestinians in Kufiyas. Um, you know, you, you, you basically see... Um, celebrities like uh, Aerosmiths and uh, uh, and yeah, Seinf Seinfeld and Seinfeld <laughs> even visited and apparently wanted to keep their their um, their visit to Caliber uh, Three quite secret, but um, they they explicitly say that what they want to do is turn the people that attend um, Caliber Three into ambassadors for the state of, of Israel. You've also got um, an organization like Fontum which what they do is they have a boot camp option which uh, takes groups of people and expeditions out to the occupied Jolan Heights where terrorist kidnappings are staged, where a person dressed in a dishdasha and a kofia comes out and takes these tourists hostage. Um, then the lone terrorist takes the group of people into an abandoned building where he is brought down by IDF soldiers. Now, the scary thing about Phantom is that their online marketing um, explicitly targets children. And, you know, it features children being led around carrying weapons and shooting at targets. Um, so it's in that way that Phantom basically um, serves as a gateway for children um, into later IDF recruitment by cultivating and normalizing within them this violence against the indigenous Palestinian population. You've got an organization like Zikit Extreme. Now, this is led by CEO Elkai Finn, who, according to his Instagram account, appears to have taken part in Operation Protective Edge in 2014 campaign in Gaza that left around 2,300 Palestinians dead. They claim to offer the full IDF experience. And their training supposedly is modeled on the IDF's counterterrorism course, again, featuring people supposed to be Palestinian uh, kidnappers. Zikit, though, seems to be more focused on the use of paintball and rubber bullets rather than training with live ammunition. However, they enthusiastically offer a boot camp for kids option, including, gen including generous offers of pizza and birthday cake. This is so the sad. insidious God. targeting of children Horrible. is prominent in their promotional videos, emphasizing the fun in, uh, in, their, in, their, um, in the systematization of violence by an army of occupation. A really interesting one though, that took their video offline after I published an article about them is Shirev Gidon. Now it's an organization that offers programs based in Arizona during the winter and it's in Pennsylvania in the summer. So it's, you know, it's, it's not in Israel proper and it's not in the Palestinian territories. It's in the United States. And the reason that uh, Jonathan Stern, who is the founder of this organization, said he didn't launch it in Israel is that it would not have been legal. 
Now, you see, if, if the video can be found somewhere online, you see um, a plentitude of firearms. Um, and he claims to have trained hundreds of students. They have options um, in different courses from the use of rifles, pistols, shotguns, and even Uzis. And at the beginning of every session, all of the students are dressed up in IDF uniforms and they take part in imitation exercises of um, uh, military formations and shooting at targets. And on the company website, you even have an employee um, at the Arizona ranch quote, quoted as saying, quote unquote, every Jew has to be armed because the Goyim don't care where you live. Eventually, they are going to come for you. And that is just the participatory side of this sort of colonial tourism on the part on that. Sorry, that's the simulatory side, the participatory side, which is where people actually go and take part in um, uh, IDF activities is is even more uh, horrifying. Obviously, you have an organization like Mahal who, you know, they were formed in 1948 and many of them were former um, soldiers in the British Army in World War II. You know, uh, some from India, some from French-speaking countries, um, hundreds of British, hundreds of South Africans. Um, Canadians too. Uh, yeah. Canadians and Americans were, were, were in this, this, uh, this sort of brigade. And again, they just served for 15 to 18 months. They're never in the position of being Israeli citizens. And, um, you know, it's purposely targeted at uh, people between the age of 18 and 23 and is described by the IDF as an administrative gate through which non-Israelis enlist in the military. You know, there's other organizations we could go on uh, forever. And I'm sure there's probably a lot of information about um, this kind of stuff on Electronic Intifada. But it's clear that they use... Um, to differing degrees, these types of organizations as um, as gateways through which people can claim Israeli citizenship or or commit acts of violence, guilt and consequence free, and then go back into the societies that they are from. You know, not not all of them are, are Jewish. So you have that also as a factor. So it's all horrific stuff, to be completely honest with you. And that's what most of my master's was spent uh, looking at. So, yeah, I did a story um, on this a few months ago about the lone soldier programs targeting Canadians and how activists in Canada are trying to get <laughs> the Canadian government to act on its own federal law that says that a foreign government cannot recruit for its military inside Canada. Um, you know, as always, there's an exception made for Israel. There's one here in the U.S. Um, and, you know, Israeli, these Israeli recruitment organizations, um, you know, have this very uh, nuanced, you know, they have these loopholes that they kind of work. Oh, no, 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 we're not recruiting. Mm. We're just encouraging them to see for themselves Israel, you know, and, and, our, and the necessary military. Um, and if they want to join, that's their, you know, that's their choice. But it is aggressive mm. recruitment and it is illegal, obviously, for an illegal <laughs> occupation mm. army. Um, how did 
you know, how did, how did that time off um, from hip hop, you know, delving into these, um, th this, re this research that you did for your masters, how did that inform your work um, when you were, when you came back? Well, I mean, unfortunately, in the period of time that I was away, what we have seen gradually, and partly it's due to the war in Syria, partly it's due to prevent, partly it's due to the general corporatized cultural ambience, partly it's due to algorithmic suppression of alternative forms of media, such as yourselves. Culturally, things have deteriorated massively. You know, we were at a time in 2008, 2009, where we'd have hundreds of thousands of people on the street deeply passionate about Palestine. And so there has been a war of attrition whereby those that stick their neck out are bashed back, even extending as far as children in schools wearing Palestinian badges being reported to prevent, you know, it being listed by prevent as one of the potential indicators that someone's on the conveyor belt towards radicalization. All of that has meant that we are now, unfortunately, operating, you know, with the algorithmic suppression in a far smaller circle of people, you know, and it was during that heyday that organizations like Electronic Intifada and, and, and people like myself were able to build um, a, a support network of people who follow what we do. So unfortunately, you're reading about these things. It kind of lends itself to nihilism. I mean, you know, look at all we've been through and look at all of the defeats. You know, we, 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 you know, there's always resistance and that's the good thing. And every day people are resisting in different ways, but they do make you pay as, as definitely Asa, I'm sure knows, they make you pay when you land blows. When you land blows, you then do suffer a consequence, whether it's just algorithmically, whether it's in terms of association, whether it's in terms of who will or won't put you on their show. And that's within the left like let alone let alone in wider mainstream british society you pay for every single blow that you land especially when you're breaking sort of these massive stories um that that um asa has done and also electronic intifada in general have been you know at the forefront of doing um let's see it, it kind of speaking to that point, um, your track "Terrorist" was attacked on Glenn Beck's show um, yeah. in 2011. Um, uh, no, and, and also in 2011, the pro-Israel newspaper, the Jewish Chronicle, dubbed you a potential nightmare, quote unquote, because mm. uh, you spoke and performed at rallies against uh, Israeli wars. What's the most ridiculous smear attack you've ever faced? <laughs> I mean, I viewed the Glenn Beck thing as an expression of love. Um, it was <laughs> yeah. just a sort of... It's a good one. A sort of <laughs> a, a, a mangled, a mangled love. Um, um, in terms of the, the most ridiculous one was once I came back in 2016 and I was trying to get onto um, Fire in the Booth again, mm. um, I was finding it quite difficult. So eventually, eventually I managed, I, I, I wrote a Facebook post 
and said, you know, why is the DJ not responding to me? And he eventually then responded to me and we, and we made it happen. Now, when I went there, the producer of the show had clearly had a, a serious talking to and he was sort of trying to proselytize a third way to me. So he was like, uh, you you're, know, you're not naming him, but this was Charlie Sloth. But was this when you were? Was, was <laughs> this when you was? He was still on One Extra. Yeah, I mean, he on, he was always on good. the BBC. He was always fine. This was on Radio One, so there there oh, been Radio a one, great right, trajectory okay. for his his show. But what I'm talking about is the producer for his show, who was also a nice a nice person. Um, I'm not trying to say he was he was not a nice person. And he wasn't trying to censor me. And in fact, as we'll see, he then got caught in the kind of crossfire <laughs> of, of what happened. Um, but he was trying to sort of impress upon me the importance of taking it easy. And he was like, you know, like, look at the specials, free Nelson Mandela. Um, you know, now there's a statue of Nelson Mandela in, in uh, outside the Houses of Parliament. You know, you can play the long game. And I said, yeah, but the BBC wouldn't play free Nelson Mandela when it came out. Like, as far as, <laughs> but like, yeah. And he was so considered to be a terrorist. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. What you were talking about in that song. And you, you know, you couldn't even put up his picture in, in South Africa at that time, you know, and of course David Cameron and, uh, was uh, getting trips paid for by a anti sanctions uh, group to go to South Africa. You know, I mean, nasty stuff, but the, the, the point is, is that he was, uh, he was, but they know, did get you on the show. Him. You had a second fire in the well, booth. As I had a second fire in the booth. <laughs> bless him, bless him. Though I think he was put in a bit of a tough position, um, and he was trying to sort of calm me down. He was trying to make sure I didn't go on air and say something silly. What happened was, I went on air and I said, "Power to victims of a globalized cosa nostra." Power to victims of this globalized cosa nostra. Power to those dying on the shores and the border. Yeah, Cosa Nostra, our thing, mafia, whatever. Next thing I know, next thing I know, a couple of days afterwards, I got a call from the producer and he's very, very, very anxious. And he's saying, look, I just need to ask you, man, just be honest with me. What did you say in that line? Because I've got the Jewish Chronicle going crazy at the BBC and we've had a com we've uh, an official complaint has been filed by the campaign against anti-semitism that you said um, power to victims of a globalized kosher nostra i had never even heard of well, the phrase well they I just made know. it up it doesn't no, it doesn't no, make no, any sense it doesn't no, scan like it's ridiculous apparently it, it was a term that someone had used one before Right. Well, now, what, what, like some, so, like one person <laughs> on. Yeah, Twitter. I don't know. I really don't know. I really don't know. But what happened <laughs> like then was. Like an Italian Jewish bakery or something. I, I <laughs> but, then, but then what happened was, but then what happened was, um, is I said to him, actually, I've put the real lyrics on my Facebook 24 hours ago and I've written uh. out the real lyrics. And he said, that, my friend, was an act of divine providence. Uh, he, said, he, said, he said, I'm so glad you've done that because now they haven't got a leg to stand on. And so my lawyer then was going back and forth with them saying, you need with to the Jewish Chronicle. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to get you need to get this out of the out of the article. You know, there was a bit of resistance online. People were saying, you know, what are you talking about? This is just rubbish. It's still they've still taken that clip out and put it on the Jewish Chronicles uh 
uh, YouTube channel saying that I'm saying something I'm not. But the actual article has changed to basically say, um, you know, anti-Zionist uh, rapper is uh, welcomed onto the BBC. So regardless of that particular complaint not succeeding, it all of it is part of a war of attrition to basically mm. say, if you put this guy in front of a lot of people, we're going to give you problems. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it's it, and I noticed as well that the campaign against anti-Semitism's article uh, about this has been deleted from their yeah. website. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because they didn't have a leg to stand on, and they probably had to, you know. But the the, the misnamed happened. campaign against anti-Semitism, which is really a campaign against uh, Palestinians, as Tony Greenstein has put it uh, in an article for us, mm. um, they were one of the main. Uh, you know, labor anti-Semitism, uh, smear mongers, really. Um, mm. so, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think that certainly counts as one of the most ridiculous smear campaigns that, uh, I have seen. I've heard. <laughs> just, just the, the stretching yeah. that, that they do to try and apply yeah. something that isn't there. It's, it's, uh, it's sad, really. For sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. let's, um, move on to a, Another topic, um, it, in your Daily Duppy, um, you had a line about uh, rap like I want to hurt you going commercial. Um, yeah. And um, there's, uh, for our US viewers, there is a hip hop scene called Drill. Um, and it's, there's been a lot of, it's got a lot of bad press, let's say. But uh, mm. it, 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 a lot of these younger rappers today do seem to be talking about violent crime in their lyrics and throwing gang signs and invoking sort of imagery like that, wearing balaclavas and so forth. So what what is your take on the drill scene? And um, do you think there's an effort on by the streaming platforms to promote that kind of music? Or conversely, has drill been the victim of media demonization? Both. I think both is, 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 is the case and both things can be yeah. true. Um, I, I don't I don't want to, you know, one thing that I've always thought about when I think about this is you've been in a situation where hundreds of youth centres across the country have shut down, where a lot of youth workers have lost their jobs where cuts to important services have taken place. And in a way, you could see the nihilism in the 2011 riots as an early response to what was happening. And then over that decade, while those conditions have got worse, more and more young people have embraced a kind of nihilism, right? Now, one of the things that I always think of is... um, the uh the the painting that they shielded from um colin powell when he made his speech at the uh united nations it was of the uh, bombing in spain carried out by franco's forces and the italian and german fascists mm, yeah now now a story about it that i always found fascinating 
was in uh, Vichy occupied France when the painter was asked by uh, a Nazi officer, did you do that? Pointing at the painting. The painter replied to him, no, you did. Hmm. Now, I think an important, an important, an important way to understand what has happened is it's not to remove agency from people, okay? But I have worked with young people and seen the removal of important services to them lead to a lot of bad things and a lot of bad things happening. What I was pointing to, though, was the difference between the support that somebody like Akala would get and the support that some of these... And so what it basically says is we are okay with, to a certain extent, you engaging in fratricidal violence, but we're not okay with you questioning the pious hypocrisies of our society. So that message is given. On the other side... What, 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 was, fear, what was the term... That they use for your daily duppy YouTube controversial comments? Um, shocking content. Shocking. So, yes. So there you go. That's yeah. shocking. Exactly. So that's shocking content, right? But then on the flip side of it, I'm also aware of legal precedents that have been set in terms of... So don't get it twisted. It's the corporate world that is encouraging that side of things. The government side of things is surveilling it, is infiltrating it probably is trying to censor it so all of that is happening at the same time now obviously since callahan's loan from the imf in 1979 we have governments who are allergic to regulation it's all sectors have been deregulated so you see a kind of out of control corporate power feeding on the nihilism and despair of, of communities that have been cut off from really important safety nets. And then a government that is also on top of it regulating or, or, or now regulating the individual. You know, the important thing that I always find fascinating is that at any point when hip hop music has been criticized, it's always been individualized and been about the artists. So you would never say, you would never say, oh, all this, all this misogynist Sony music. You'd never hear that, hear that yeah. said, would you? Yeah, that, that's a really good hear. point. And I think on that note, we're not yeah. going to name, we're not going to single out any particular drill artist in that, in that respect. Absolutely not. No, 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 no. I, I don't, because, you know, because I, 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 I can see, I can see a lot of vulnerability there and it's, it's vulnerable to many different things. And like I say, the legal precedents that are being set in terms of, and more and more um, uh, pieces of legislation are being pursued and passed in order to squash that little space of, of, uh, of expression. And, and, I, and I think it is going to get worse over the next 10 years or so, for sure. For sure, we won't be looking at the same world in 10 years as we're not looking at the same world today that we were in 10 years ago. Um, I wanted to ask about um, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement and how 
you know, you look at the importance of artists supporting that Palestinian call um, and not playing shows in Tel Aviv. What's your advice to young artists who are being lured possibly by the, the giant offers that the Israeli government uh, makes to play a concert there? Like how, how would you wow. speak to a young artist, a struggling artist? Great question. I mean, Desmond Tutu has directly identified the, the practice of, of, of boycotting, divesting, and eventually sanctioning as integral to the process that played out in South Africa. You know, it's believed by some that the musicians union in this country was the first organized block that banned its members from going and performing mm -hmm. in, um, in apartheid South Africa. You know, you had when Bruce uh, Springsteen and uh, the specials and Bob Dylan were singing about these things, they were where culture went eventually, you know, with the passing of the act in Congress um, uh, against uh, uh, apartheid. You saw where culture went eventually politics kind of had to follow. Obviously, what's happened since then is, is, is another story. But the, um, you know, the, the precedent is clear. Um, it's, you know, one of the few um uh, requests from Palestinian civil society to the rest of the world. Um, and it's, it's definitely the least we can do. But I also think there's another wing to it, which I think is reflected in a lot of what Palestine Action are doing at the moment, which is the direct, direct action side of it. Because the important thing about that is rather than the sort of you could say bds is a kind of a form of passive resistance and i don't mean passive to, to in any way to denigrate it it's a passive form of real resistance that has an effect but then the direct action side of it it flips it flips this question of accuser and accused because whether it's the raytheon nine or others who have gone through this whenever they've gone into court actually what it's been is an opportunity to put Israeli war crimes on trial right. rather than the person being accused of this direct action against this factory. So I think that were we to be 10 years ago again, had we had a push like we're seeing from Palestine action and, 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 and you know, fantastic campaign like Huda, had you had that 10 years ago, it would have been amazing. And in a way, you had elements of it just slightly misguided in the demonstrations of 2008 and 2009 you know there were places that were perceived to be um of israeli interest in london that were being stopped from functioning you know at least during that period and what it's about is it's about taking that energy and that vitality that the young people have and putting it in directions that actually have material benefits and wins from them you know, and so I think that uh, in terms of artists that would be offered, uh, you know, the problem is, is we are in such a, uh, a dystopia. We're not educated about even the last 10 years. You know, Asa, you know, you, you have written about being among those that special branch spied on, right? 
If you were to say to the average person on the street, did you know that since 1968, at least a thousand political groups of them, yeah, and we use that definition of political groups very loosely, Hedgehog Rescue Committee in Scotland, <laughs> a group of vegetarians from Nottingham, uh, Greenpeace. Um, you know, we're talking about organisations that loosely could be described as political in some cases. Stephen Lawrence's family yeah. Yeah, was spied upon. If you were to say to the average member of the public, did you know that a thousand, a thousand political groups were infiltrated from 1968 to early 2000? They wouldn't know. Yeah, and I think I think even the left the don't and that's quite what... realise the scale of it. You know that mm. that it was actually it was the whole political left. It was it was you know it, it was everyone from the anything that yeah. can vaguely be called left wing, basically. Yeah. Um, and uh, in addition, black justice campaigns against police brutality, who were um, not really leftist not particularly socialist they were just their family members seeking justice um and they were yeah. infiltrated and spied on yeah yeah and 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 the reality is is you can deduce from what was happening then you know what's happening now being far more developed and um you know and we saw it in the 2017 election you know while you know, people like us were going door to door, were mobilizing tens of people locally to register to vote, to get involved. The internal surveillance system of the Labour Party was conspiring to lose the election. Yeah. So, so, so we underestimated how malignant, it's either malignant or it's dynamic, maybe it's both. We underestimated those functions of the establishment in this country. Yeah. And what we tried to do was the work of, frankly, 20 to 30 years in four. And by that, I mean, we need institutions of political education because what's happening is people are coming out of school not understanding that Britain occupied 14 million miles of the globe, not understanding that it still sits on the, the, the biggest tax evasion um, empire in the world, that 37% of all government losses globally through taxes come from British tax havens. You know, not understanding why we are all here at this time, what London is, you know. And uh, it, it's sad. Yeah. It's sad, you know, but 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 what it means is those of us that that have that have spent you know the better part of a decade working on this stuff, we have to improve the ways in which we're able to communicate this information, yeah, and 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 reach people, and also you know we have to get off the computers too, yeah. you know, we 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 can use the computers for what we have to use them for, but we have to organize locally because we we don't stand a chance. We really don't stand a chance otherwise. Why do you think Jeremy Corbyn was able to be so successfully smeared and deposed? Um, there's several factors at play there. Um, I think there was a, a willingness to entertain ridiculous stuff um 
there was a willingness to take bad faith actors as good faith actors. There, um, you know, when I say the willingness, you know, I, I'll be honest, even on a personal level, not really with the anti-Semitism stuff, you know, you know, you're depicting what was not point, you know, uh, around 0.1% of the membership being accused of something or 0.3% of the membership being accused of something as 30% of the membership is, it's, you know, it's not that in was that the public sense, perception. Not, not, yeah. not, not, not in that sense. Yeah. That, you know, thanks to a, another great book that David Miller um, was part of, but, but um, what, um, even in terms of my own discourse, about Zionism and about Israel, I found myself having to sort of disguise myself as a liberal in terms of the arguments I was making. And what, what do you mean? Give you know, an example. Reality. Well, so I mean, you frame your arguments with international law, UN resolutions. Look, the fact is, the Palestinians are engaged in an anti-colonial struggle. That's the truth. That's the truth, you know, and wrapping it up as not an anti-colonial struggle essentially is, can only lead you to a dead end yeah. because it leads you, it leads you to this sort of uh, dictatorship of prevailing orthodoxy that says, you know, we sit down with both sides. I mean, you know, right. The, 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 you know this kind of stuff that has been used as subterfuge to just yeah. extend what what Zionism wants to do to the Palestinians, right. you know. And and the other part of it is this sort of Martin Buberization of Zionism. Mm -hmm. You know, Martin Buber was a spiritual, non-state centric Zionist. Leo Pinsker was a non-Palestine centric Zionist. You could say, right? You could interpret them as that, okay? That, that was never more than tens, if a hundred or so people. Yeah, there's a real push at the moment, uh, and it was fairly successful in the Labour Party, um, and now again on campuses, to sort of say, oh, well, Zionism is just... It's, they're, they're trying to depoliticise it almost... Or exactly. at least disguise it as apolitical and say, "Oh well, it's just, uh, it's just my Jewish identity is Zion Zionism is just my Jewish identity. I, so I, therefore, by opposing Zionism, you're being anti-Semitic." Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, to be honest, I much prefer, you know, some the kind of things that Jabotinsky and Ben Gurion yeah, were saying. Yeah, it's more frank. saying it's more honest. The Palestinians, yeah. <laughs> the Palestinians are indigenous, and we are colonizers. Yeah. And it was clear in that sense. And, and um, I think this kind of, uh, it, it's run amok, really. It's run amok. And, and, and 10 years ago, there was far more clarity about what was happening and what we were dealing with. I mean, internationally, people were in a far stronger position also. Right. You know, you, you didn't have this level of servility and... embrace of Israel that we've seen across the last 10 years and particularly from the UAE. Um, 
you know, and, and one of the things that David Miller pointed out as well, he was pointing out three years ago um, levels of collaboration between the UAE and Israel and stuff like this. And, you know, we're, we're, we're at a terrible time and it, and it lends itself to, to nihilism as well. And, and it's about trying to not see a negative conclusion to almost everything happening. <laughs> but again, it's by landing those I blows. I know what you mean, yeah. And um, I quite like some drill, actually. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but you know the, the you know the, we we how could we not you know how could how could I mean, there's a lot of talent there, the last yeah yeah but aside from drill but aside from drill you know the week that Grenfell happened to me was the height of sadness and pain mm. and the height of optimism in the same right. week. Because it was the week after Corbyn's um, 2017. It looked, it really so looked I, for a minute there, like, you know, she almost lost the election and he could sort of come yeah. in any month, you know? Yeah. She was on the ropes. She was staggering on the ropes. Yeah. This, yeah. We, we, the, across the board, there could have been far more of a forthright and confrontational attitude and, and 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 more clarity yeah the the smear campaign that unfortunately was never called out for the smear campaign that it was you know this this was mm -hmm. this was the problem that um exactly that was faced yeah yeah well i think i think that's probably a good place to end it we don't have to end on a positive note like you know <laughs> it's not we're not in a good situation so let's just be realistic <laughs> yeah yeah no, but to be, I'll be honest with you, it, it is nice. It's the first time I've felt that I'm being spoken to in an interview setting by people that are, I feel are on the same side. Like most of the time, it's, it's especially with this BBC stuff, man. Oh. Like sometimes you still have to go and talk to them, but you just don't know who you're dealing with. Yeah. Well, you're welcome on the EI podcast anytime. Seriously. Yeah, I mean, I Thank think you. I we'll think we it. will have we will have to get you back on because there's there's a lot yeah. more to talk Wicked. about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I just dropped you know a major point in at the end there, you know, which I, I, I at the last that? minute I didn't prepare you for, but there's a lot to talk What's about, you know. So yeah, it would be great. Oh, with the Corbyn stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, put... we, we... Oh, go ahead. Go <laughs> no, I mean, we thought that we could uh, impose it from above. We thought we could impose pro people policies mm. from above, from somebody who was, you know, with through the vehicle of somebody that was being surveilled by the intelligence services and has been for several decades. And we thought they were just going to give us the keys to number 10. It was just never going to happen like that. Mm. You know, back to Ramsey McDonald, the intelligence services have conspired against those that they thought would have any type of independent foreign policy in, in this country. You know, and that was the first Labour government. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. Amazing. Um, well, we're going to put a link to all the ways people can get in touch with you um, on the podcast blog post that accompanies this. You can also just... Follow Loki online at Loki online and the O in online is a zero. So Loki zero in line. Um, and you can, of course, listen to him on Spotify. We'll have all those links up. Um, Loki, it's been a pleasure. Um, and yeah, anytime you want to come back on, 
you are more than welcome. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for watching the Electronic Intifada podcast. For our audio listeners, you can now watch a video version on our YouTube channel. Please help us with the algorithm by liking our videos, leaving comments and subscribing to the YouTube channel. We need your help to beat the Silicon Valley monopolies that are suppressing news on the battle for justice in Palestine. You can also support us by sharing our videos on social media and writing reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your audio podcasts. You can donate to fund our journalism by visiting our website, electronicintifada.net. Then click Donate Now. You can give one-off contributions or become a regular funder. Thank you.